Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to be here. Uh, again, like Pastor Greg mentioned, my name is Dave. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, um, I've actually been here on the staff. I joined as an intern all the way back in 2008. It's hard to believe it's been that long already. And you know, before I came on as an intern, I had a lot of just non-ministry related jobs. And a few of them, actually most of them, had to do with doing retail or being involved in customer service. Um, I worked at also a variety of restaurants. I was a waiter for five plus years. And one thing uh, that my employers always taught me, this was considered this was a time pre-COVID when people paid with cash a lot, is whenever we'd receive like $100 bills or even $20 bills, uh, they would want us to check to see if they were counterfeit or not. And the main way that they had us do that, we had these little counterfeit detection pins. And basically, you would mark it, and if it came out kind of a, a more of a pale color or more of a clear color, then you knew that the bill was legit. If it was darker, then you knew it was fake. And I think I have a $20 bill here. I was going to do hundreds, but I have to do this three times, so I didn't want to pull that much money out of the bank. But like $20 bill, I'll mark it here and see if it's real or fake using these little detection pins. Oh, it's fake. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's real. It's real. But uh, so you would mark it like that, and then that way you know that it was real. But anybody want the $20? It's not serious. Come on out. Come on, grab it. Here you go. You might even be able to buy a South Bay Community Church water bottle in the lobby. It's one for 10 or a special two for 20. So make sure you guys head out there. It's great. But we would do that is because counterfeit money was so prevalent, right? And I believe even today, I believe it's $70 million to $200 million a year in circulation is counterfeit here in the U.S. And honestly, it makes perfect sense that money is counterfeit because it's valuable. It's usually only the really valuable things that are counterfeited. Uh, things like Gucci handbags, things like Rolex watches or fake Jordan sneakers. Those things are very common. But there's a danger in something that's counterfeit. And I think what it does is it deceives other people. And sometimes it even deceives the owner. Sometimes you don't even know what you have is fake. And you wrongly believe that what you have is real, that it's true, that it's valuable. But really what it is, is it's fake, it's false, and it's worthless. And as we look at scripture today, the Bible warns us time and time again about something called a counterfeit faith, a fake faith. And when we look at it, we might try to pass it off like it's the real deal because we think it is. Or we might know maybe there's some parts of our faith that aren't, but we try to pass it off to other people like we have a real strong faith. But when we take it and we test it according to Jesus, or we take it and we test it according to scripture, we find it's nothing more than a dangerous fake. And today we're going to look at Mark chapter 7, just like Pastor Greg mentioned. And through two stories, we're going to determine what a counterfeit faith looks like versus a genuine faith. And I'm really excited that we'll be able to go into this passage today. So let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We're thankful that we have the freedom to come to a place of worship, to be with our brothers and sisters in Christ and worship you. Father, we know that that's not something every area of the world enjoys. So thank you for providing that for us. And I thank you for just this journey of Mark that we've been taking as a church, uh, not just with the messages on the weekend, but for those that have wanted to follow along in the journals and, and read Mark uh, each day. And I think, man, we have a great passage here today as we look at what is happening as Jesus deals with the, the, uh, the Pharisees and, and with the scribes. And we look at a woman who just has incredible faith. But I pray ultimately, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. That wherever we're at this morning, if there's things we're struggling with, we're able to turn that over to you and we'll be able to hear clearly the things that you want to impress on our hearts and that we will remember it long after we leave today. Speak through me, Father. I know in many ways I just feel ill-equipped, but Father, you do so much with people and you use them as a vessel. And I know it's going to be the Holy Spirit that really speaks to us this morning. We love you and we praise you and praise you in your name. Amen. 
Well, as we pick up in Mark chapter 7, uh, if you guys have been tracking the last couple of weeks, Pastor Gray and Pastor Dan have shared with us just some great insights, and we've covered some very significant miracles that Jesus has performed. One was the feeding of the 5,000, and one was walking on water. And due to this, because Jesus is doing these amazing things, people are taking notice. People realize the power that he has. And so wherever Jesus goes, he's just mobbed by people. And he goes into these towns, and people bring their sick. They bring the hurting, and they bring it before him because they know that he can heal. And because of this, the Pharisees and the scribes, and the scribes were professional scholars. They were lawyers who specialized in the Mosaic Law. They realized what was happening, and they didn't like it. And they would gather intentionally, and they would come up with a way to discredit Jesus because they felt like what he was doing wasn't true to their law, wasn't true to the law of God that they followed. And so they have another interaction with Jesus, and this is what we're going to read in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. You can follow along on the screen or on your apps or your phones or your Bibles. It says this, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, they were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they washed their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So what's happening here in an effort to publicly shame Jesus, to kind of show him to be an incompetent teacher, uh, these people notice that the disciples, they haven't washed their hands. And they feel like by doing that, they're violating these purity laws. And there's two important notes I want to really pull out for you here in this passage. Uh, this isn't washing your hands like we would consider it today, right? It's just probably good, clean manners to wash your hands before you eat, right? You want to clean the germs off before you eat a meal or when you leave the restroom. This wasn't that. This wasn't a case of bad manners. This wasn't a case of a health issue. This was a, done according to the Pharisees' ancient laws. And this was really a case of being unclean in the sight of God. That's how they viewed it if you didn't go through with this hand washing. And for them, man, this was really serious business. And what they meant by washing hands wasn't how we wash hands today. There was a whole ceremony uh, that was laid out that they would have to do. And this ceremony involves someone pouring out a jar of water onto another person's hands whose fingers must be pointing up and the water would drip down past their wrists to their elbows. And then they were to flip their hands down with their fingers pointing down. They would pour more water upon it. Then they would have to take their, their fist of one hand and rub it against the other hand and do it vice versa. And that was the process that they had to do. And this wasn't just a once a day thing. This is something they had to do repeatedly. And in their eyes, that would make them clean before God. The second thing is, this public challenge, it wasn't so much them calling out the disciples. This was trying to undermine Jesus by, by pointing out how impure the disciples were. And if the disciples had violated these purity laws, and Jesus, he would be the one held, be held responsible as the teacher, as the rabbi. It would be like coming to service today, and maybe some other pastors, religious leaders come in here, and they interrupt the worship service. And they, they look around, and they, they want to talk to Pastor Greg or one of our pastors and say, hey, how come your congregation, how come when you pray, they don't close their eyes? They don't bow their heads? How come they don't get on their knees? Is that because you're poorly trained and you haven't taught them? It'd be a way of, of digging at the person who is in charge. And in a culture where good reputation, your good reputation is really the highest authority, they were looking to shame Jesus and discredit him. But the thing I love about Jesus, and you see throughout Scripture, is, of course, he had a great response. Of course, he was ready. And this is what he says as we pick up in verse 6. And he said to him, 
Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. I want you guys to underline that. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses says, honor your father and mother, and whoever relies, whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. You know, Jesus' first response to these religious leaders, he references a passage from Isaiah 29, 13. Then he calls them out for being hypocrites. I think many of us are aware of what a hypocrite is, right? Probably somebody that says one thing, does another. Somebody's kind of putting across a false appearance. Um, But here in the Greek, it has a little bit of a different definition. And it comes from this word, hypocrites. And the definition of that is one who answers in a set dialogue or one who answers in a set conversation. They're kind of like an actor, but not like a stage actor. Uh, They're someone whose life is a piece of acting without really having any sincerity behind their actions. And to connect this to the religious leaders, Jesus is saying that anyone whose faith is entirely dependent on rituals, on carrying out certain certain rules and regulations and observing various rituals, that they're a hypocrite. If that's all their faith is rooted in, then they are hypocrites. And the danger in this is that someone may believe they're a good person because they're carrying these things out. But the danger in that is they may be carrying out, but their heart and their thoughts aren't supporting what they're doing. And Jesus is saying, if this is the case, then your faith, there's a great chance that it isn't genuine, that it's counterfeit, that it's a fake. You might as well be playing a part just like an actor would. And then Jesus goes on to really reject their whole law. And in verse 8, he says this, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. It's like, for you, it's not about God. It's about your man-made rules. That's the religion you've created And because you're holding on to the traditions of man so tightly, you are actually abandoning the Ten Commandments, which is the real law that I gave you, that my father gave you. And he brings up one specific way that this is happening. He references one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. And one of the ways this was done at that time uh, was to assist them financially. Uh, You had this responsibility as your parents got older to help them financially if you were able. And for many of us today, we, we do that. You might have a parent or both parents that maybe are struggling financially. And if you're able to, you want to help them out. And this is what that responsibility was. And Jesus mentioned something a little different. It took me a little bit to realize what this is. But he calls something korban. And korban, it meant it was dedicated. It was set apart for God's use. And it was used to be uh, given in the sacred treasury in the temple. It was something that was of value, something that was worth, because you were setting that thing apart for God and for godly purposes. But the Pharisees, what they did, they negated that command by teaching that people could give money to the temple instead of helping their parents in need. And saying it was korban really exempted a person from the responsibility they had to care for their parents. In essence, it just became a super convenient loophole if they could sidestep this financial commitment that they had. And they took a legitimate korban offering, which was given to God, and they used it as an illegitimate and devious way to defraud their parents and to selfishly keep things for themselves. And at the end of verse 13, Jesus says, and many such things you do. This is just an example. You do a lot of things like this. 
And your first point is this, a counterfeit faith pretends to be godly. You know, we see that from this Corban example here to Jesus using the word hypocrite, which again meant to act something out. And there's a sense that a counterfeit faith, it really masquerades as a genuine faith. It tries to pass itself off as being the real deal. And we can even see this idea play out here in the church, maybe on a smaller scale, but we see parts of this. And it could be doing the right thing, but doing it for the wrong reasons. Maybe it's you're looking to serve, but you're not looking to serve because you want to help other people or because you have these gifts and talents and you want to use them to bless other people. Maybe your primary reason to do that is because you like to be seen. You like to feel important. You want to show off. You want to maybe be in a place of leadership because you like that place of authority and you like the title that comes with it because it helps you feel better about yourself. It could look like coming to church primarily, your main reason coming to church primarily because you want to socialize. And church is mainly a place of socialization for you where you get to hang out with people. Or maybe you come to church because, man, I want to find my partner. Like that's the best place, so I'm going to go there. And I think there's nothing wrong with enjoying some of these things. There's nothing wrong with coming to church and, and, and being with your friends and meeting new people. That, that's part of the beauty of the family of Christ. And there's nothing wrong with coming to church to potentially find your partner because what a great place to come to. I'm the first one that would say I wasn't married until I was 40, but I found my wife who's here today uh, when I was here at a small group. So I get wanting to come here and the church being a great place maybe to find people who have a strong faith. But, but those are more benefits and blessings that should come about naturally. Those shouldn't be the primary reason that you're here. But I think the reality for myself, the reality for most of us, is that at times we're going to do good things and we're going to have ulterior motives. That's just how it goes. It's part of being an imperfect person. But it's a great reminder. And this is something I have to encourage myself to do and I would encourage you to do, church. is to continually examine your motivations. Bring those to God. Why am I doing this? Is my heart in the right place? Well, earlier I showed you guys this counterfeit detection pin, right, uh, which helps you figure out if money is, is real or counterfeit. And it, the reason why I can do that, like a little bit, not really too much science, but a little bit of the science behind it is that it reacts to the starch that's found inside most types of paper. And genuine U.S. currency, that's, it doesn't have that starch in it. So that's what it detects. So really what it's doing is reacting to what's on the inside. And it's letting you know that the inside can really determine a lot. And this is something that reveals what's going on. I think for most of us, there's something inside of us that reveals what's going on inside of us. People from the outside might not be able to see it, but really it tells us what our motivations are. It tells us what kind of faith we have, whether it's genuine or whether it's counterfeit. And that thing is your heart. Your heart reveals all. And your heart reveals exactly where your faith is at. And this is a truth that Jesus really wants to impart on all of these people that have gathered to hear almost this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. It's a great set of verses, and we'll pick up in Mark 7, 14. It says, he, Jesus, called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that is going on and going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. The religious leaders, they continually talk, that's the outside things, the things you put into your body that defile you, that make you unclean, like what you eat. That's happening from the outside in. But at this time, this is really a revolutionary teaching by Jesus because it goes totally against what the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching. He says, no, that's not it at all. That's not it. He's saying it's the things that come out of you that make you unclean, not from the inside 
not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That's what's important. And he uses the example of food because he knew the Jews would be able to identify with this. They would often take food and they would classify it clean or unclean. But he said, hey, you eat food and it just goes into your stomach. And from there, you just expel it. He's like, the food is physical. It won't impact what is spiritual. And he says this in Mark 7, 20 through 23. He says, what come out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. He said, hey, you guys, you have it all wrong. You look at the outside impacting what is within. I look at what is inside the heart impacting what comes out. And there's really a process to this that we might be able to identify if we look at our own lives. Because it starts in our heart. And from our heart, maybe evil thoughts start to come into our mind. And those evil thoughts, if they're left unchecked, eventually they're going to lead to evil words. And they're going to lead to evil actions. And some of those actions are laid out right here in the scripture. Sexual immorality, theft, coveting. Wickedness, envy, slander, pride, the list goes on and on. He's like, if it's in your heart and at some point you don't invite Christ in to change it, it will eventually manifest itself outwardly. At some point, if those evil thoughts are left unchecked, you might be able to hold it off for a while, but eventually it's going to show itself somehow, some way. Maybe in your words, maybe in your humor, maybe in your actions. But the beauty of God is he can change your heart. He can take those evil thoughts and transform them. He can take thoughts of, of theft or stealing something and transform into a heart that gives generously to other people in need. He can take coveting and us really wanting something that's not ours and replace it with a heart of thanks for the things that we have. He can take slander and he can replace it with words that just build people up, that encourage other people. And he can take pride and he can transform it into a humble heart that realizes that everything that we have comes from God. And this is what the religious leaders of the day, they didn't get that. They didn't understand it because they didn't get it. The people they taught didn't get it. And we even get a sense in this passage that even the disciples didn't quite understand this. And like Jesus often had to do, he would pull his disciples aside and he would explain it a little more in depth to them so they would understand. And I think the religious leaders and many of the Jews that were being taught this, they were so caught up in their institutional traditions and they were so caught up in their personal beliefs that they're really withholding the one thing, there's one thing that Jesus needed from them to give willfully, to give humbly. And what he wanted, he wanted their heart. That's what he wanted most of all. It wasn't adherence to some rule or regulation, some ritual. He wanted their hearts. And I believe this is your next point. A counterfeit faith withholds its heart from Jesus. You know, we can see here from the religious leaders, this is something they're unwilling to give Jesus. But we're about to read a great story about a woman who offers her heart willingly. And I love this story. It's my favorite part of this passage. I can't wait to go through it with you. Before we get there, uh, you know, this past week, uh, oftentimes when one of us is getting ready to preach, um, you know, I'll talk to Pastor Greg because I just like to talk through the message with him, see what he has to say. I feel like he always has wisdom or good direction. And we were talking about this passage, and he shared this, uh, this story that actually I can share. He told me I could share it with you guys today. It's about his son, Evan. Now, Evan's in middle school. And a little while ago, Pastor Greg and his wife, Monica, they don't really allow Evan to drink soda regularly, now, on, only on special occasions. That's probably a good practice, right? You don't want kids drinking soda all the time. 
Well, when Pastor Greg grabs a soda and Evan sees that, he often asks, hey, can I grab it for you? Can I go get the bottle? Can I go get the can? And Pastor Greg tells him, yeah, you can go grab it, but you can't have one. You're not getting any of it. And Evan gets that. He understands that. And Evan will pour the soda out for him, whether it be in a bottle or a can. And after he's done, he will ask Pastor Greg, hey, can I, can I keep the bottle or the can? Pastor Greg's like, yeah, but there's nothing left in it. And Evan will grab that bottle and he'll shake every last little drop that's there. And he'll lick out whatever is left from that bottle. Or if it's a can, you know that, that rim that's on the outside of the can sometimes? He'll lick the rim, which I'm pretty sure is dirty, but he'll lick that rim and he'll get whatever he can out of it. He just gets this, but Evan just really wants soda. And he's going to get it any which way that he can. And if he can't have the can or the bottle, he's going to get whatever drops he can get. And it doesn't matter how he gets it, just as long as he does. you got to love it. Well, in this story we're about to read, there's a woman who desperately wants and desperately needs Jesus. And she will take even the smallest bit from him, anything that she can get, anything that he's willing to offer. So as we pick up in verse 24, just a few details before we read it, Jesus, he's exhausted because of this ministry. So many people are coming to him, these interactions with the Pharisees and the scribes, but he's looking to get away. So he heads north and he heads to an area called Tyre, and he's hoping that this is a place where people won't recognize him, people won't know him. And the relationship between the Jews and Tyre, it's not a good one at this time, uh, because there's really this historical tension between the two groups. Uh, Tyre was kind of known relatively as having people who were wealthy, and the people in Galilee were poor farmers, so they were kind of from different social classes. And if we even look in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, there's historical records that point to the involvement of Tyre in selling some of the Jews into slavery. So you could see why the Jews would, would have an issue with them. And to top it off, Tyre was known for having rampant idolatry, that the people there worshiped false gods on a regular basis. This was one of the main uh, points where this took place. And so this was a place for Jews you probably just wouldn't want to be in. You wouldn't want to travel there. You wouldn't want to go there. But in these verses, Jesus wanted to keep his presence secret. But soon, there's a woman that finds him. And this woman has a daughter that's possessed by an evil spirit. And she is asking, and actually not even just asking, she is begging for Jesus' help. In this story, we can also find it in Matthew chapter 15. It kind of goes side by side. Um, but we find out that this lady really just continues to beg. And the disciples are hearing this. And their wish is that Jesus would dismiss this lady. And in Matthew 15, you get that the Jews are like, Jesus, can you just tell this lady to go away? Because she continually cries out and continually begs for you. And a few important things. There's a lot going against this lady in her interaction with Jesus. First off, she's a woman. And the woman was never meant to interact with a rabbi, with a religious leader. That just didn't happen in those days. That was strike number one. Secondly, she was from this area where, again, like we mentioned, there's a tension, right, between Israel and these people. And they were really seen as beneath the Jews. And so the disciples could look at her as, hey, this person's kind of beneath us. We don't have to interact with them. And that's strike number two. And again, like we just mentioned, these people are false God worshipers to the worst degree. And that's strike number three. But after taking some time, Jesus finally responds to this lady in verse 27. And responds to her kind of in, in a way that on the surface seems like an uncaring uh, illustration, an uncaring interaction. So let's see what happens in verse 27. Jesus says this, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. After reading, you might be thinking, wait, what is, what's going on? Is Jesus calling this lady a dog? Is that his response to her? 
And I think as we read this, you know, this isn't dog like the dogs we think about today. The dogs then were really like these scavengers uh, that they were wild, they were untrained, they would roam the streets looking for any food that they can get. If you ever travel to other countries, you might see dogs like this, dogs that are just in the wild. I know when we went to Uganda, we would hear these dogs out in the streets at night howling. And that's just kind of how it goes. This isn't our man's best friend or domesticated dogs that we love and care for today. But I think there's three metaphors that if we understand in this passage that we'll really get what Jesus is saying. So I want to go through them. We'll have them up here on the screen for you. In his response when he mentions children, Jesus is actually talking about the Jews. He's talking about the Jews. And he was saying they were the priority of his mission, of his ministry. That these children, the Jews, this is who he primarily came to share the gospel with initially. And then he uses the term bread, of the bread that's being thrown out. And the bread represented God's blessing that he was offering to the Jewish people. And the third piece of that is dogs. And just like we mentioned, this is more of the domesticated form of the animal, not the wild, um, just scavengers that were out in the street. But oftentimes dogs refer to Gentiles, to non-Jewish people, anyone that isn't of Jewish descent. So what Jesus is really saying here is that his first responsibility was to preach the gospel to the people of Israel. And the hope was that as he preached the gospel to the Jews, that they would be so overfilled with these blessings that they would be able to share that with other people that weren't Jewish. That was the hope. That was the plan. But for a variety of reasons, that never happened. But Jesus knew in time, this blessing would go out to the Gentile people, just like we see happen in Scripture later in the New Testament. But for now, he knew his mission, and he shared it with this lady. This is what he's telling her. And I love it because her response is short but it's very powerful. But I believe in it we see a foundational piece of a genuine faith. So let's read Mark 7, 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And just as powerfully as her reply is, it's what she didn't choose to say. And she didn't take offense at this misunderstanding. She didn't take offense at Jesus calling her a dog. But how dare you call me that? She didn't come with a heart to just push back against Jesus and debate him. Instead, she showed great understanding and acceptance of Jesus' reply. And when you look back at Mark to this point, how many times has Jesus shared something, a teaching, a parable, and the people just don't get it? We've seen that numerous times throughout Mark. Sometimes even the disciples don't get it. But not here. This lady understood. She understood exactly what Jesus was saying. And this lady, she wasn't synagogue educated. She wasn't a Bible scholar, but she knew Jesus. And she knew what he could do. And that's what really mattered. And that's why she understood what he was saying. She simply and humbly agrees with Jesus. And she states her desire, just as the dogs will be by the dinner table with the hope that some crumbs fall. And you, for those who have dogs, they know this, right? I, I bring my son, he's two years old, and I bring him over to my dad's house. And I put him in the high chair. My dad has two dogs. And as soon as he gets in, it's time to eat. They know he's going to drop food. And they come around because it's like it's dinner time and they're ready to eat. And you guys might have noticed this at, at your homes too. But this is what this lady is saying, that she's just hoping for some crumbs to fall to her. She's hoping just to get one small piece, just one small piece of Jesus' blessing. And not even for her, but for her daughter. She knows that even the smallest piece of Jesus is going to be enough to help her and to help her daughter. So from lying at his feet the moment she saw him and begging to him, to acknowledging him as Lord, to her gracious response, knowing she was undeserving of any blessings, her posture was characterized by a complete absence of pride and self-reliance. And that's your next one. It's that genuine faith is marked by humility. 
Genuine faith is marked by humility. Man, what a, what a contrast we see in these two stories, right? We, our initial story, we saw the religious leaders who were really, uh, really unwilling to let go of their pride. They refused to see themselves as unclean. They thought their traditions and efforts could save them, that they were in control of that. And on the other hand, you have this lady who accepted that she was undeserving of Jesus' mercy. And she knows she doesn't have anything to offer Jesus. And her response was, Lord, I, I don't need to sit at the table. I just need you. That's all I need. And I think, church, this is what true faith looks like. It comes with a humble admission that none of us, not me, not you, None of us are deserving of the grace that God gives us. We don't deserve the salvation. We don't deserve the freedom. We don't deserve the restoration that Jesus earned on that cross. And it comes with acknowledgement that all of our efforts on the outside to be happy, to be successful, to be right, to live a good life, it won't ever change what's going on here in our hearts. Only Jesus can give us a new heart. Only Jesus can give us a new life. And this woman knew this. And because of her humility and trust, we see Jesus' response and I want to share with you the response. It's actually in Matthew 15, 28 through 29, because it holds some key words that we don't see in the account in Mark 7. We'll pick it up in verse 28. It says, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Instantly she was healed. I mean, what an impactful statement by Jesus. He said, hey, this woman, she has great faith. And if we look at Jesus' time in ministry in the New Testament, there's only two times where he called somebody out for having great faith. One, I believe, was the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8 when the centurion sought out Jesus to get healing for his servant. And the second time is right here, right now. So you know that this statement holds weight. You know that this statement is important. And because of her genuine faith, it said that the woman's greatest desire, her greatest desire had been granted and her greatest desire was for this demon to leave her daughter and for her daughter finally to be in peace and to be resting now at home. And there was such a sense of trust that this woman had in Jesus. After he said that the demon had left her daughter, she didn't say, man, that's great, Jesus. I'm so thankful that you did this, but maybe can you come home with me? Can you come and check just to make sure, just to make sure that she's healed? No, she just turned around and went home and she had complete trust that Jesus said what he said, did exactly what he said he was going to do. That's all she needed. And your next point is this, is that genuine faith is marked by trust. It's marked by trust. You know, the question I have for us today, considering the example of this lady is, will we be described as a person of great faith? I think about that question for myself, and, you know, honestly, I think my faith is okay. Sometimes it's pretty solid. But is it marked by humility? Is it marked by trust? And I want to show you guys just a little illustration. Uh, maybe you've seen this, this stool, and it kind of represents like our faith, right? Trust. And I can tell you guys that I really have trust that this stool can hold me up. I can tell you that. But what would show you that I believe this, right? What action would I have to do? Yeah, I'd have to sit in it, right? I'd have to take my weight. I'd have to rest it on there and just trust that this will support my weight. And I think our faith oftentimes is the same way, that we can say we have faith, but at some point we have to rest the weight of our life and our hearts on Jesus. That's how we prove it. But for many of us, we like to find ways around that, myself included. And some of us, we, we like to lean on Jesus. We don't like to put our full weight, but 
when times come up in our lives and we need Jesus because there's things outside of our control, we'll lean on him. If we have a big test coming up, like, okay, God, help me. Help me remember everything that I learned. Help me to get a good grade. I'm leaning on you in this Jesus. Or maybe for some of us, it has to do with work. And we have a big job interview. Man, God, like, there's things here. Give me good favor with those making the decisions. Help me to, to, to come off well, to have the right answers. I'm, I'm leaning on you, Jesus, in this matter. Or even the ante might be upped. And there might be something going on physically with ourselves or someone we know. And the doctors might have found some things and they're not sure what it is. And so we lean in with both hands. And we're like, Jesus, help me. I need you in this area. Please come through for me. But if we make it through it and everything turns out all right, we pull our hands back off. We're back on our feet and we're in control again. Then some of us have a little bit of a greater faith. And we'll actually sit on the stool. We'll actually place more weight upon it. We'll be like, Jesus, I trust you. I have faith. But I have a backup plan, so I'm going to put one foot down. Or I'm going to put two feet down. And the situation might come up where I, I trust you, Jesus, I have faith. But if you don't come through, or you don't come through the way I want, boom, I'm right back on my feet again. I'm in control. I have a plan B. And we walk away there. And I think there's some of us that actually like to pick the stool up, right? And we like to pick our faith up. And we like, but hey, guys, look at my faith. I have faith. We come to church on Sundays, I'm here, that shows I have faith. Or, hey, I'm serving, or I'm, I'm active in a life group. This is my faith. I, I do have faith. But when Monday rolls around, and maybe Jesus is asking things of us that we're just not willing to give up, or maybe we're in our work environment, we don't feel we can live out our faith, we take our faith and we firmly plant it right there. And we walk away, and we say, hey, Jesus, no, don't worry, I'll come back for it. I'll grab my faith again next Sunday. I promise, I'll be back at service. But I would ask myself, I would ask you, what would it look like if we lived a life of genuine faith? We're willing to sit on that stool, take the full weight of our lives, and just place it on Jesus and not hold anything back. I believe that would be a life that is marked by humility. I think that would be a life that is marked by trust. I think that's a life where we'd be willing to give Jesus the one thing he really desires, and that's our heart. And not just a part of it, but give him all of our heart and not hold anything back. And church, I know that's scary. That, for me, that's scary because I like to be in control or I like to at least think I'm in control. And when I do that, it means I have to pry my hands off the wheel, the steering wheel of my life, and I have to give it over to Jesus and trust him. And when I do that, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know what he's going to do. But I think in moments where we have that kind of faith, that's when our faith is alive. That's when our faith is genuine. That's when our faith is moving. That is when God's going to do amazing things through it. And when we give him our hearts, all of it, that's when he can truly transform us from the inside out. And church, I think that would be one amazing life. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you and we, we see these stories and uh, maybe we can relate uh, to some of the things that are happening here. Maybe we can see uh, that at times, you know, our faith isn't so genuine. Maybe there's times our faith is just dependent on ritual and, and doing the things that we think Christians should do and that kind of puts us in good standing with you. Maybe there's times where we hold things back from you because there's just certain areas of our lives that, that are, are too close to us, that, that we want to be in control. And we don't want to lose that, Lord, because we don't know what you're going to do with it. We want to protect it. But I think, Father, as we read these scriptures, it's so clear what you're asking of us. 
You're asking us to be humble with our lives. You're asking us to trust you completely. You're asking us to give all of our lives to you. And we see this in this Syrophoenician lady, a lady who had really no right to know and trust in you, but did totally and completely. And I think about Pastor Greg's message last, last week, so a lady that was looking for you to fill in the gaps of her life because she knew she could never help her daughter, but she knew that you could. I pray, Father, we would come with that type of faith, that we would examine our faith throughout the week. And if there's areas that are broken or areas that are distant from you, that we would allow you to come into them. And I know that life, even though it may be uncertain, even though we may not know where you're going to take us, that's a life that's truly alive. That's a faith that's truly alive. And I know you'll produce amazing things through it. Thank you again for bringing us here this morning. Thank you again for the truth of the word of God. We love you and we praise you, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.